Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening. I'm John Hardman, the President and CEO of the Carter Center, and welcome to Conversations at the Carter Center. Tonight, our topic is improving the lives of women through public health initiatives. This is the last of this year's Conversations at the Center, and we are pleased to have a special donor audience with us this evening and the general public watching via, via live uh, webcast. Conversations is a series of discussions held at the Center each year in which we talk about our health efforts and peace initiatives as well as current world issues. Almost all of our conversation events are open to the public, but tonight we are limiting the space to our special donors, our ambassador and leg legacy circle members. So members of the public have been invited to watch via, via the live webcast. This webcast is archived on the Carter Center's website for later viewing. So if you enjoy tonight's program, you can go home and watch it again or tell your friends about it so they can pull up the program on the website. There will be a question and an answer period after the presentations, and so note cards have been given you, and I hope you will write your questions on those. Volunteers will be walking around picking up those questions to later give to our panel moderator who will discuss those with the panelists. Tonight you will get a glimpse of how closely intertwined our health and human rights issues are for women in which the Carter Center uh, and places in which we work. Women are leaders, and women are leaders for change in their communities. And the Carter Center is very proud to be a partner with women and their families all over the world, but helping some of the poorest and most neglected people face the challenges of their daily lives and build hope uh, for them. So we will start tonight's program with a brief video feature featuring our trachoma program uh, director, Dr. Paul Emerson, who will discuss how one of our blinding diseases impacts the lives of women. Here in Ethiopia, the majority of people presenting with trichiasis are actually over 40. And the vast majority, three out of four, are women. Trichiasis causes blindness. But blindness is only a little part of the story. The inward turning eyelashes, before they cause blindness, are scratching against the cornea and are causing intense pain. Trichiasis is miserable. Because of that pain with the sunlight, it makes it impossible for women to fetch water, to fetch firewood, to work in the fields. It makes it very difficult for women to cook over smoky fireplaces. So what we find with trichiasis is not just a cause of blindness. It's a cause of stigma, low self-esteem, inability to work, misery. 
they can be taunted and teased by their age mates and peers. Oh, why do we have to listen to you? You can't even feed your family. A family cannot work in its early stages if there are not two working people in it. Women are divorced by their husbands. They get sent home to their elderly parents and become a burden on their parents. Children are withdrawn from school to support the mothers and miss out on education because they're caring for the mother. At the same time, they can be nutritionally compromised because they're not uh, getting enough to eat. And because they have more trachoma infections, they infect their mother more frequently and the severity of trachiasis increases. So it cycles intergenerationally with daughters affecting their mothers and mothers affecting their daughters. The horror of trachoma and the misery of trachoma goes way beyond blindness. You're just seeing Dr. Paul Emerson on the screen, but he is the director of our trachoma control program at the center and co-director of our uh, malaria control program. He's spent almost a decade devoted to operational research and program evaluation in the support of gl the global effort to control trachoma. He holds a doctorate degree in biomedical science from Durham University in the United Kingdom and a master's degree in applied parasitology and medical entomology from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene and of the Royal Entomological Society and has authored more than 50 scientific papers. Dr. Emerson. I wonder if the raw material matches up to the pictures. <laughs> Karen Ryan is the director of the Carter Center's Human Rights Program. She's worked at the center since 1988 in a variety of roles, representing the center in many international negotiations, including the International Criminal Court, the Human Rights of Women, the UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, the establishment of the UN High uh, Commissioner for Human Rights, and the UN Declaration on Human Rights. She earned her bachelor's degree in political science from Emory University here in Atlanta and is a contemporary writing and production degree recipient from Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, Karen Ryan. Elizabeth Cromwell is the assistant director of the Trauma Control, Tr Trachoma Control Program and she supports the National Blindness Prevention Programs in all of the Carter Center assisted countries. She also supports the management of program grants and has an interest in operational research. Her recent projects have explored the role of gender in trachoma control. Her, prior to joining the Carter Center, she served with the U.S. Peace Corps in Niger from 2003 to 2005. She earned a bachelor's degree in international studies from DePaul University 
and a master's degree in public health from the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, Liz Cromwell. Now, you heard earlier that we had a team in Sudan, and I just returned from Sudan the first part of the week, but I, these three panelists returned today from Africa after circuitous tr routes trying to get here, uh, with Karen arriving at 6 a.m. and Paul and Liz arriving at 3 this afternoon. So we're quite fortunate that they're with us for this program. And tonight's moderator is Joanne Silverna. Many of you hear her frequently on the radio. She is the health policy correspondent for National Public Radio and is also a current Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellow here at the Carter Center. She has won awards for her work from the Society of Professional Journalists, the New York State Mental Health Association, the March of Dimes, Easter Seals, the American Heart Association, and many others. Her work has also earned her the Unity Award as well as a Clarion Award. She's a graduate of Johns Hopkins University with a degree in biology, but has a master's degree in journalism from the Columbia University School of Journalism. Join me in welcoming our moderator, Joanne Silverna. Thank you all for coming, and especially the panelists. I'm very impressed that you got here. It couldn't have been easy. The goal, I think, for the evening is for you all to get a sense of the work these people do and the role that paying attention to women has in, in how they work and how they work effectively. And I'm going to try and represent you in the questions that I ask to them, but you will also get a chance to ask questions, and I think that might be the most interesting part of the evening. We're going to start with a question to Paul at the end of the table which is a very general question. Why are we talking about women here tonight? Why are we separating them out? Um, <clears throat> we've just seen the video on, on trachoma control, and we've seen that women are disproportionately affected. And uh, trachoma is, uh, uh, trachoma control it's, has an aim of eliminating trachoma as a source of blindness across the world. And since women are disproportionately affected, we need to actively target, we have to reach, and we have to serve the women if we are to reach our objectives. And we can't consider uh, any people uh, as passive recipients of programs. They're active consumers, and they, they make a, an active decision whether they participate in the programs that we, we support in the various countries in which we work or not. And in order to, to reach our objectives, we have to recognize this, recognize this and have to reach out specifically to women and to, to present the programs in such a way that they want to participate for themselves and they want to participate for their families. So in order to do that, we can't ignore them. <laughs> well, I want to get back to Karen on the human rights angle of this, but first let me ask Liz a question that's programmatically, are there special 
special things that it means. You've, you've talked to me a little bit about the latrine story. Is that a story you can tell us? Oh, absolutely. Um, women have been very effective in all of our program countries in, in adopting behavior change strategies. And, and the challenge is really to figure out how to reach them the best. And in Ethiopia, we were very successful promoting household latrine construction. Mainly, we realized that there were some cultural behaviors in which women weren't defecating during the day. They would wait until the evening to go out because there was a lot of shame associated with that practice. So when they learned about having access to a household latrine, it would enable them to, to have the capacity to, to, to do that during the day if they wished, um, instead of having to go out in the open field where they would be seen. So they were able to pressure their husbands and encourage them through that mechanism I, you know, to build a latrine. Can you imagine coming home to your wife who is very insistent on wanting a household latrine so that she can have her um, personal hygiene um, opportunities at her discretion. And so that's, that's a way you can use these different networks and these different social and cultural mores to really enhance the program and implement interventions. Well, how did you reach the women there? Well, in Ethiopia, we used a lot of rural radio, um, community health-based um, extension workers have been very effective with some of our recent activities. Um, we've also done variety of mass media activities from school-based health, so where we target children who go to primary school. So they're learning about the messages and they're taking them back home. And as I recall, there, you had a good metric on this for how many, how much more successful the program was than you actually expected. Well, the latrine construction component in particular in those districts where we started was incredibly high. 98, 99 percent of households were um, reporting having latrines and building latrines. Starting from what? Um, well, yeah, just to, to, to chip in, um, we realized something interesting was going on in 2005 when we had an annual intervention target of 10,000 household latrines, and the program reported 89,000. Um, that was the time. <laughs> yeah, I think that deserves no, a hand. That was the time that we started to... Uh, started to... But, but it gets better. Um, <laughs> That was the time when we started to investigate really what was going on. And by quickly investigating what was going on and discovering that there were these key individuals, and uh, particularly women and working through women's groups, who were motivating their husbands to, to um, provide their, their household latrine. We've now worked on that, um, on that strategy. And since then, the Ethiopian government has instituted a system of um, community health extension workers who are all women, and they're working on a daily basis at the household level. And the productivity last year in Carter Center assisted areas was over 400,000 household latrines. And what we've seen, and I, I, I don't want to imply that the Carter Center is the only organization doing this. Uh, we, we're contributing among, uh, along with the government of Ethiopia. It's the government of Ethiopia's program. It's the government of Ethiopia's health extension workers that we're working with. Um, but the, the, what we've witnessed is, is nothing short of a revolution, that the baseline was about 6% of households with access to a latrine at home and it's now approaching 60%.
Wow. So it, it, it really is a very major success. And have you had time to measure the health effects of that as well? Are you seeing a decrease in disease? We're seeing a um, substantial decrease in trachoma. Trachoma control is an integrated strategy. It has uh, four parts. Uh, the first is surgery for people with advanced blinding trachoma, um, where the, the eyelids are operated so that those lashes we saw in the, in the video uh, are rotated away from the, the globe and stick out again instead of sticking inwards and scratching on the, on the cornea. Um, the second is antibiotic distribution, which we've been remarkably successful at and which we can talk about later, utilizing in particular this network of women health extension workers. Um, then facial cleanliness or hygiene education in its generalist uh, in its most general approach of face washing, hand washing, to wash away the bacteria that cause uh, trachoma, and getting the faces of kids who are the, the reservoirs of trachoma and it be fountains of infection chucking out the bacteria to in infect their, their mothers and friends and family. Um, and finally, the environmental aspect, which is the um, latrines and water provision. Now, it's rather a long way of answering the question. Um, the question was, if anyone can still remember it, was about the impact of, of the uh, sanitation program. But we can say that uh, in areas where we've been doing three years of the full integrated safe strategy, S-A-F-E, uh, we've seen declines in active trachoma of about 75%. Okay which is very useful, but when we started at 60, and we're now down to sort of 20 or 15, the WHO threshold for intervention... So 60 what? 60%. 60% to... of children with signs of active trachoma. Wow. So even if we can reduce that even 75%, the threshold for intervention is 10%. Above 10%, the WHO says this is a public health problem. So even with a 75% decline, we still have to um, keep going quite a long way in order, to, um, in order to tackle the disease. But we're now at scale in um, Amhara Regional State in Ethiopia, and we're at scale in Mali, and we're at scale in Niger. And if we can continue with the support of the donors and with the support of the governments and support of other partners. We are in a real, we have a real possibility of eliminating blindness from trachoma in those areas by 2015. With women playing the role of making sure those latrines, their husbands get out there and get those latrines going. Well, Karen, in the human rights area, you know, women are very often the victims. How do you see the role of you know, focusing on women playing out in, in helping out in the human rights area? Well, I, I think what you've heard already from, from Liz and Paul are wonderful examples of ownership, local ownership, and uh, accountability, um, local, at the most grassroots, uh, local accountability within the family, within the community for results. And I think what it's important to look at is that these health, whatever, whatever health issues that we're, we're looking at happen within a, a certain context, a larger context, a larger societal context, 
where um, you find a correlation between good governance, accountable government, and quality of life. Um, and um, so, so the, in the peace program areas where I work, where human rights and democracy program and the peace um, conflict resolution program, our focus is on those issues, accountability of government. That's why the Carter Center observes, goes uh, to so much trouble to be in the Sudan to observe elections there, to help project forward accountability in government so that these problems, whether they're um, trachoma or guinea worm or malaria, can be, uh, be really treated um, in a way that communities are involved, but also that governments are responding to the needs of their communities. Uh, Paul mentioned that the, their program is in uh, coordination with the Ethiopian government. This is extremely important. Uh, this is the way the Carter Center works, and it's, I think, from what I've observed, very, very uh, essential because um, the international community, oftentimes, they come out with big ideas and they, they zoom in on a problem and lots of foreign nationals uh, sort of pounce on a capital and think they have all these solutions. And I think what the Carter Center has always tried to do is try to figure out where the centers of gravity are, work with the government, help the local partners to make those kinds of programs happen. Now, in human rights specifically, um, you know, it's, it's difficult for, uh, in the human rights program, to be able to say, well, we, we uh, averted or solved for, uh, 400,000 human rights violations. Uh, so I can't compete nice. with Paul's statistics. Um, but what I can say is that um, within the, these contexts that we work, um, this atmosphere of governance is always central. And the role of civil society and governments in advancing the human rights agenda for women, I can just give you an example. I just returned from the Congo where, um, of course, a horrific war has uh, unfolded there and you have um, just incomprehensible statistics like um, five million deaths um, from the war, from di both disease and conflict in Eastern Congo from 1997 until now and um, estimates of around 200,000 reported cases of extreme sexual violence against women in that region, and these are only the reported cases. Um, this is an area where there is no governance. There's war, but even so, there's, there are no institutions. Now you have a democratically elected government. There is no judiciary. There's no law enforcement. There's no avenue um, for women and their communities to either seek justice for their perpetrators, um, other than seeking out small-scale humanitarian-type responses to assist the victims. Um, so we have to think about the context within which we're working, that communities where there is no accountability of government, um, you will see that the likelihood of conflict, like as happened in the east of the Congo, to break out. And so what, in terms of a human rights response, um, our work is really to, to work with local human rights activists to help make their case, to, first to their own governments, um, to, uh, for example, in the case of Eastern Congo, uh, before the war break broke out, you had um, activists trying to, to raise awareness about the rising, the escalation of the conflict. Um, and it's really their job to sort of play the fire alarm so that the building doesn't burn down. But now we're looking at um, this horrific, uh, you know, 
10 alarm fire. Um, so our, what we're really trying to do is, is to figure out how human rights activists and within the context of political reform and better governance, societies can approach um, these problems from a governance point of view, holding their governments accountable to make sure they're delivering these kinds of programs. But this you were talking a little bit before we came in here about one of the ways that you could help that process, and it was with the judicial system. Tell us about that. Well, in, um, in the, I was, uh, I'm thinking about Eastern Congo because I, I spent a lot of time talking to women um, about talking to our partners, including a wonderful woman named uh, Julienne, um, who works in uh, the Kiva regions where the war broke out. And she said that, for example, she and her organization would have to pay a judge to travel from his village to the courtroom in order to uh, do his job, to hear the complaint of a woman who had been uh, uh, raped and, and in some cases very violently um, disabled. Um, and even the, the law enforcement, the police, have to be paid. The government is not paying their salaries. And so what her organization does is she goes around and organizes trials for the perpetrators of these crimes. Um, now, this is one very, very uh, industrious woman with her organization, um, but this is the state of the situation, and you've got a huge international community involvement. The, the, there's been a lot of coverage, and I think rather sensationalistic coverage of the, the violence in Eastern Congo, but there are very practical things that, that we need to be doing to help the courts convening, to help the police better enforce the law there, um, and that's not happening. And until that happens, um, then these cases are, are going to be it's going to be difficult. Number one, to get justice, which is very important to the women; they want that in order to heal. But also to prevent the cycle of violence from spiraling and spiraling and spiraling over the years. I think that's and that's quite instructive for the uh, the context of the health programs as well, where um, we trying to provide service to improve people's lives at the village level. And in order to, to get people to, to buy in and want to participate on that, you're actually asking them to, to put a lot out. And the people living in, in areas affected by trachoma and malaria and guinea worm are the poorest people in the world. They don't have a great deal. And what they do have is their own self-respect, mm -hmm. and they do have their own self-esteem, and they have the respect of their neighbors and their friends. If you ask them to change the way they do things, they risk now standing out, and, and if standing out from their peers, and if they happen to, to back an idea that doesn't work, then they, they risk their own uh, esteem and standing within the, within the community. And it, it, it's very important to try and uh, try and uh, recruit people into the into the programs in such a way that their their social capital and their self-esteem is enhanced, rather than um, put at risk. And Liz, do you have any examples that might? Well, what comes to mind immediately is our program in Southern Sudan, in, in particular with delivering trachiasis surgery. I think that. One thing that we've done that's been successful is by training people in the community in which they're planning to work. And so these are people who are very familiar with the local context, with the local culture, and 
especially in a place where politically there's a lot of insecurity and a lot of instability. And so by having people who are, understand those, those different components of a culture that may not be apparent to me or you or to someone from the outside, it's been very effective in, in encouraging people to trust the service and to have faith that this may be an intervention that will help them. Can you reach out to women equally to men in every culture, or does it differ culture by culture? I was going to ask the same question. Can you, uh, <laughs> uh, can, can you, um, no, let's just stick with the same question. Well, I think that you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to, to any of the work that we do. I think we have to be very sensitive about the cultures in which we work, and sometimes it's very effective to reach women through their husbands or through their male relatives. In other cases, you can develop different health communication strategies targeted at men and then a different one targeted at women. So can I think you give some examples? Oh, sure. Um, for example, in Niger, we've done a lot of community um, programming and in regards to latrine promotion and health um, and hygiene education. So we've been able to reach women through training school teachers and local leaders, um, both kind of your traditional chief, but also the marabou, which is a religious figure in the community. So by winning over those opinion leaders, they can trickle down into the other parts of the community and you encourage the people. the a woman? Uh, generally not, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, in Mali, we have worked with women's groups. So we find um, most communities in Mali have a informal structure, a women's group, and they t tend to have one or two leaders that are respected by the community, and it's not necessarily something that's recognized by the political structure, but the community members all know who the women's, who the women's leader is, and, and she's been effective in coordinating mobilization for surgery activities, participating in antibiotic distribution, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's extremely important to involve men in the, in, on the issues of women. I've, I'm, I'm one of those people who resists um, um, unless you have a particular reason for reaching out to women as a group, and there are plenty of cases like that. I'm not saying you don't ever do that. I, I think it's very important to incorporate women's issues across the board into general programs and not and try as hard as you can not to have a sort of a minister for women's issues and et cetera deal you know ask but why not them. I mean you're looking okay. at a situation where women are victims of violence yes but I would for example in the Congo you have a, a woman uh, a minister who's responsible for gender issues I think that's okay as long as the minister of justice and the minister of the interior um, and the, the police inspector general and the, the national police are all equally seized with the issue. Because otherwise you, um, just last week, the uh, Canadian uh, governor general, who's a, uh, a black woman, was in Kinshasa and she gave quite a lecture to President Kabila and the entire military hierarchy in the parliament uh, about sexual violence. And uh, there was applause you know, in the room of the general, the military men sat there quietly. Um, and, and so there's a lot of noise being made about the issue because of the publicity. And they, what they'll do is they say, well, we, have a, we appointed a, a woman minister to be assigned this problem. And mm. don't worry, we're on it. But what, we're, what the Carter Center is doing, we do our, um, pro, we've been working with the, um, the committee on, on police reform. And we've just helped, assisted this committee to develop its module on sexual violence for the entire national police force. That module, well, we're now working on getting the, uh, this was a temporary committee on police reform. We're trying to get the permanent police commissioner now. That's our next task, is to really enroll him and his gender expert, Francoise, Madame Francoise, in that process of, of adopting 
this training module for nationwide for police that will be in all the regions. And what will they and be trained to do? They will be trained, for example, in, in cases of sexual violence. First of all, you have to understand the, the cultural context. And we've worked very hard with local partners to make sure that we are sensitive to, uh, that it's not just sort of something off the shelf from you know somebody's idea about how you train police officers on women and rape and this sort of thing. That uh, we've, we've worked with Congolese NGOs to develop these modules. Um, and so, for example, if a woman comes with a complaint, how to handle that? Um, that it should be a female police officer that interviews her, there should be a separate space. You know, some of the things that we learned with the tri international criminal tribunals, you have to have witness protection that's geared towards women in particular. Um, so there are sort of steps that you take, and you have to overcome stigma. Uh, you know, in, in health issues, there's stigma. In something like this, sexual violence, there's stigma to a, a huge degree, that women will be rejected by their families. And so uh, one of the other areas that we're, we're, we're trying to, to work on now is working with the uh, religious leaders in that area. Um, and, and how welcome is that information? To, or how, how welcome is your involvement there? Well, this is, this is key. This is, it's a good question because it's a very delicate matter. Yeah. I think for international NGOs, and, and in particular, you know, there's this issue of sexual violence in the Congo. It's sort of the new uh, fad issue. You know, it, it sort of moves around, and you, you have a lot of activism around it. And I applaud the activism. I'm an activist. I consider myself an activist. But there's sometimes the, you know there can be simplistic ways of looking at a problem. And so a lot of people are rushing into Eastern Congo. Oh, sexual violence. It's very you know we've got to you know punish this company, punish that government official. And there is some of that. We have to hold the military leaders accountable. We have to hold the government accountable. All that. But you have to figure out how to get. You, you have to figure out what that partnership looks like. You cannot storm in there and say, oh, you know, this is where you know. So what we've worked really hard, we have a project called the Human Rights House in Kinshasa, and we are developing, uh, uh, the way we're doing it is we're inviting the involvement of the NGOs and saying, what, are the, what do you need? What are your needs? I'll give you one, one example. When you say NGOs, do you mean the foreign NGOs? No, no. These the are Congolese NGOs. Okay. For, uh, for example, we'll offer training in finance management of of an NGO, you know, how do you run an NGO? How do you, you know, how do you write proposals, et cetera, to help them to fundraise? And one, I, I, I was thinking of him when I started this on, on the, the point about men. There's a man named Ibrahim who I just, I just met. I, I hadn't known him before. I've been involved in Congo a long time, but this is a young man. This is this was always my hope is that a new generation of people would come up in the Congo and take these issues in. And this young man has an organization called Servo. And he organizes soccer matches with men. And what he does is he'll he'll organize the soccer match and he'll get military like uh, like rebels and, and and members of the army. He'll sort of tell them, oh yeah, there's a soccer game, and he'll pull them you know into the game. And he'll say, okay, well here's the rules, and then he'll change the rules on them and make it into a lesson about rules about how important it is to have rules, you know. And then, then say, well, you know, what about this? And look at what happened to this woman. And so he'll introduce the issue of sexual violence into that kind of a setting, getting the men That's talking brilliant. to each other. And so you, so, so the, the reason I'm, I'm pulling this all together is that Ibrahim, his organization, I asked him, you know, what do you think about the Human Rights House? Are we a good partner for you? For, you know, what are, we, are we doing anything useful here? He said, well, 2007, December, I was my first training here. Now uh, it was on fundraising. And he says, 
and, and now, and he said, this is what I've done. Since that, because of that training, now I'm on my own. I, I'm out there raising money for our organization. And in fact, in, our, in a conversation we were having about fundraising, we were saying, yes, we're fundraising and we're trying to fundraise. And he says, well, have you been to the World Bank? Why don't you, why don't you go to the World Bank? I said, well, they work with government. They don't really work with NGOs. He said, well, you know, I know I've heard that, but you know, I went up to them and I said, well, you're funding the government, so you have to fund me because I'm monitoring the government's effectiveness in this area. So you have to, and they funded him. The World Bank. Yes. So, so I was just, I tell you, I wanted to cry because I, I you know, you always wonder, is the partnership, is your partnership one of those, my worst nightmare would be for the Carter Center to be one of those NGOs that comes into a place, sort of plunks down and takes up space and takes up precious donor dollars. I just refuse. This is a country I love deeply. And I don't want to be one of those blood-sucking yeah. <laughs> kind of resource-sucking I, 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 I think you're absolutely right that, that in all of our programs, we have to work with uh, and be empathetic to the culture that we find there. And in terms of the, of the health programs, we often find that within the culture, women have responsibility for hygiene um, of their children, but yet they don't necessarily have the authority to purchase soap. So how do you deal with that? Well, you, you, you must work with both men and women. And in the case of um, hygiene promotion, where our target is clean faces of children, is in addition to training um, women in soap production or promoting the um, facial cleanliness uh, in the community, one also has to um, work through men to say that it's your responsibility to ensure that your wife is able to make your kids clean so that you'll have a healthy and happy family. And we find in all of the programs that people are pretty much the same wherever, wherever they are, whether they're living in a, a, a mansion in Cobb County or whether they're living in a uh, small, modest farmhouse uh, in, in the edge of the Sahara. And the husband would, would, would like a, a caring and dutiful wife <laughs> And the wife would like a reliable and responsible husband. And they both want harmony in the household. And they, we all want uh, the lives of our children to be better than our own. And these are emotional hooks that you can hang your program on. And this is how we can, we can get buy-in by the, by the communities, that we're, we're looking at a whole health systems approach to um, improving the lives of women, improving the lives of children, and improving the, the, the health status of the population. Now, it's a, a, a whole systems approach, but yet we focus very much on, on individual diseases. And, um, but and one leads to another. If you have hygiene, you're not just going after trachoma, you're going after a number of diseases with hygiene. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting, we, we don't have metrics on this, but I feel like I'm new in Ethiopia, but I realize I've been working there now since 10 years, and I've probably been in the rural villages 30 or 40 times in those 10 years. And when I cast my mind back, um, 10 years ago, 
people were dirtier. There, no doubt about it. People were dirtier. And the dresses of women when they were going to work were characterized by hundreds of tiny patches that, which they'd sewn to, to mend their dresses. And the, the level of patching has decreased. Now, why um, is that? So people are cleaner, but the message is getting through on hygiene. People are, well, there's also a shoe thing as well. There's more people wearing shoes than there, than there used to be. So there's, a, there's uh, the, health sis, the, the health promotion, the uh, trachoma program, the sanitation program, the action of the health extension workers. You know, they don't happen in isolation. They're, they're all happening simultaneously. And the, the net of all of this is development. And that's really where, where we're going with all of this. It's freedom from disease. If you, if, if you wish, if a country wishes to achieve its development targets, it needs a healthy population. How, uh, sick people are not productive people. Mm -hmm. So the health programs feed in to the agriculture programs and the development, the, the broader development programs. And the sum of it all is more people wearing shoes, more kids going to school, more kids being clean, a greater uptake of uh, sanitation, and um, trust in the health system so people are more likely to seek uh, treatment and behavior, uh, health, health treatment seeking behavior is, is how we refer to it, but it's people are more likely to reach out and say, um, you know, we have a problem with, with whatever. And this process of empowerment means that if, if people in the developing world collectively say it is not acceptable for our children to die from malaria, they will take care of it. If a government says it is not acceptable for the people in our country to be having guinea worm disease, then you'll get rid of it. We can try as hard as we like, but it's, it's not uh, non-governmental organizations. It's not the Carter Center that's going to rid the world of malaria or trachoma. It's the people themselves led by their own governments. Well, Liz, we talked a little bit about training programs and bringing women into the healthcare system, especially in Ethiopia. Tell us a little about that. Well, we do a lot of different training activities. We train trachiasis surgeons to perform surgery um, in both the static facility, so at the local health post, and also through outreach campaigns where they do a large-scale um, activity where there may be four or five surgeons at one location, and then people come in, or they actually go to directly to communities where they operate there. Um, we've trained health extension workers to do antibiotic distribution and health education activities in coordination with that. And we also do training of teachers, other um, health system employees. Uh, but are are you do. bringing women into a new environment where they weren't before, and is that a good thing to do? Well, I think that I don't think it's necessarily that there have never been women in that space before. The Health Extension Worker Program has been active in Ethiopia since 2007, and those are almost exclusively women. Um, and the government has actually targeted to, to, to really promote that among women. But I think with the trachiasis surgery training, we've increased the proportion of women surgeons that we have. And I think that it's a place where they can actually is that serve. Is better? 
They're probably better, yes. But, <laughs> but we and you mentioned that they, they actually they stay in the field longer? Well, we've actually just done a little bit of operational research to see how our surgeon performance, you know, in terms of attrition, average output of surgeries per surgeon, et cetera. Um, and what we've noticed is that the female surgeons are staying longer at post. And that may be because they don't have as many opportunities outside of that space in terms of their professional development. It may be that they're more passionate about the work. I mean, there's a whole suite of reasons that could contribute to that, but we have seen a lot of retention among the female surgeons. Have there been any issues for any of you when, when you bring women into environments and, and train them where they actually get some pushback, local cultural pushback, and is that a problem? I, I ask people this a lot, and um, we have in the past, uh, less so now, uh, promoted a, a, a lot of use of rural radios, and um, having women uh, in particular, because if you uh, consider yourself tuning into your local FM station, you, it's really nice to hear people with a similar accent to you, and it's nice to hear people that you can, uh, you can relate to. And we very much focused on, on having women uh, be advocates for the health promotion programs so that they, they are uh, advocating for other women to benefit from the opportunities. And it's then our job to ensure that there's access to the programs. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I've, I've asked a lot of the women who appear on the radio shows a lot, because a guy will go on a motorbike or even a bicycle with a, a recorder, a very, it's not quite up to your level, but a, a tape recorder and a, and a microphone and, and record the opinions. and. Ask the the women, you know, how, how does your husband feel about you uh, talking about sexual health or hygiene or whatever on on the on the radio? And says, well, at, at first they might feel something, but generally the response is that the husbands are, are proud of their women because they're also buying into the program and and see that uh, that their wives. Um, can be agents of change. But by putting those rural radio uh, broadcasts into the hands of the people who are there, of course, they're not confrontational. Uh, a woman is not going to, to advocate on the radio and be broadcast and heard by all of her neighbors as uh, something that is culturally inappropriate, because, of course, she simply won't do that to herself. Mm. So. I've I've been surprised. I, I've I've often asked, I've often asked the the DJs, the women who are interviewed, uh, young children who are in theatre groups or or performing health education messages at schools or marketplaces, and uh, I expect them to to be uncomfortable. But then they say, well, no, it, I I have an opportunity. I'm a health worker now. And you say, okay, great, let's keep going. <laughs> we'll do more of this. <laughs> it's, um, as Karen mentioned, we're, we're not interested in, in being an NGO that takes up space or, or tells people how to do things. Go wash your face. Go and make your life better for yourself. <laughs> and, and sit and, you know, just, just give instructions. We, we definitely want to work with the existing structures and constantly monitor what we're doing and do less of what doesn't work 
and do a lot more of what does work. Well, Karen and Liz, you're working in some male-dominated societies as women. Are you accepted as outsiders? You know, do they look at you as a woman and therefore you shouldn't be doing anything, uh, that, doing any of the things that you're doing? Or do they accept you and, and work with you as, as you'd like? Uh, I think, uh, well, in the, the two country programs where I work, in particular in the Congo and in um, Israel and Palestine, I've had varying experiences. Um, and um, I, th I have not, with the exception of some men not wanting to shake my hand in Gaza, or uh, that kind of thing, I got used to that very quickly, that's no, no problem, or being aware of how you, much more aware of how you dress, um, that's that kind of thing. But um, no, I, I have not, um, not among the NGOs, um, not among the government officials that we've met, um, I ha can't say that I've delved very deeply into the religious leadership hierarchies, so that might be another matter. Um, but I think that the, the, the issue there is really um, a sensitivity to not project, um, to overly project sort of um, an American kind of vibe, if that's the right word, or a, or a sort of a cultural judgment. I think that's um, the key to just listening more and finding out um, how to keep everybody at ease that you're working with. So mm -hmm. I think that it's manageable. And Liz, for you? Well, and I've had a varying range of experience with the gender question as, you know, you arrive in an airport and you're trying to get assistance and maybe they see you as a woman and that's, that's something that you just negotiate as a traveler. But when, I, when it comes to my work, I think that one thing I always do is have a strong counterpart or someone that I have either from the Carter Center field office or from the Ministry of Health who I have developed a relationship with. And so that they know me, they know not only that I'm there to support them, but they also know that I, I understand the programs, I understand where they're coming from, and that's really a true partnership. And when, I've, I, when I feel like that's established, the gender question kind of goes away. I don't really have, if someone doesn't want to hold my hand or, or shake my but hand. Is rather, that partner a male? Yes, oftentimes. It's right. usually um, most of our the counterparts that we work with with ministries of health are indeed male. And so I feel like when you establish the credibility of I'm here to support your program in, in that partnership, um, the gender issue is no longer as relevant. I think it's also confounded. I'm, I'm younger, and so there's also an age issue, too, that comes into play. But generally, once you establish that working relationship, it's, it's not an impediment to my work. That's good to hear. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. And Karen, I want to go back to you with the question of if you draw women out of their customary roles to be involved in an issue, are you putting them at risk? Um, well, we seek out um, women who are already active. So um, I wouldn't say that we work to draw women out. The, the, our partners that are working, this woman that I mentioned, Julianne, um, you know, or um, uh, let me give you another example from another part of the world. Um, in Malaysia, which is a conservative society, um, some women that I've, I've worked with here as part of our annual Human Rights Defenders Forum work on, um, they're Muslims themselves, and they have an organization called Sisters in Islam, and they work in Malaysia. And this is extremely important to find women who are effective and active in their own cultures and it's, what they're doing is they're drawing women out, but they're creating spaces that are culturally safe for them, challenging, but within their own context. 
So for example, they'll, they will challenge certain rulings. Okay, another example, it just occurred to me. Do you remember when there was a, 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 a lot of noise made about this uh, law that was passed, going to be passed in Afghanistan on women, the, the family law that had a provision in it that allowed uh, for a, a husband to, to force his wife to have sex with him, i.e. rape in our culture, um, or one would say anywhere, forced sex would be rape. And so, or marital rape, however you want to euphemize it, maybe. Um, and imagine if, you know, Amnesty International and the Carter Center, everybody had descended on Kabul with placards, you know, that wouldn't have maybe worked very well. But it was hundreds of Afghani women who went and they protested and they were very loud and just sort of in a very, you know, uh, activist spirit took it on and, and it affected the, the government. The government acted to amend that law. So I think there, 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 are two, there are two things I would caution against. One is being over, you know, not sensitive enough. The other thing I would caution against is making judgments to say, oh, well, that's their culture. And so we really can't delve into those areas. Because if you look, almost everywhere that I've worked, you will find women who are active. Right. who are taking on some of those issues. Um, and I, I think equal protection under the law is kind of, I don't know, I feel pretty strongly about that. So, and so do women in their own societies. And so the thing to do, I think, is to figure out, instead, is find women who are drawing other women out and say, what do you need? How can I help you? Can, what's an you know, example of something where, where you've done that, and what have they asked well, for? Well, um, what's interesting is what they ask for is they, what most people, what, what, they, what they really want is they want visibility, and you say, are they at risk? They have often made that decision to take that risk, to be active and visible. So if they've made that decision, hey, more power to you, we'll do, what do you want? You know, they've already made that decision, so we're not putting them, thrusting them into any spotlight that they haven't chosen. That's number one. But we, uh, often what they have asked for is for um, sometimes partnerships, funding, you know, there's always a need for funding for them, for their work, so that's one area that you can actually help. Um, but what, the reason why we... Funding for what? Funding for this program I mentioned in East Congo where this woman is going around helping to convene trials so that women can bring their cases to court. And what does the money do? Where, where does it go? This woman has an organization called Sofa Padi, and um, she, has a, she, you know, she has her mission statement and her budget, and she's sending it out to donors, and she's, you know, she has activities that she can document, and this is what we do, so she's fundraising for, the, for all of the... But didn't the, you mention to me that, that she actually helps the judges make their journeys? Yes. Because, tell yeah, me she, about that. She, yes, they'll pay, you know, here's the journey of a judge. You know, they're in their village. It takes them three hours to get to the courtroom. By the time they've shuffled their paperwork and got started, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So they see, you know, it's 2 o'clock, so it's 4 o'clock. They start thinking, oh, I've got to start making the journey home. So there's two hours of work. So, you know, th that's a very slow process. So they might, you know, pay for... Um, them to stay overnight one night and, and be able to have a full day work or, you know, that kind of thing. Or even to transport the police, you know, the, 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 the police to go pick up the perpetrator and bring, you know, which is, is it's really sad when you think about it, but, but they've decided that, that they have to uh, uh, help the victims bring their cases to court. I just find that so fascinating mm -hmm. that, you know, we often say, oh, you know, really is justice the issue or is it, you know, 
or is it just get on with it, turn the page? But for these women, they, they, that's important to them. And Paul mentioned something about trusting the institutions. When, the, when people start to trust the institutions, I think this is extremely important. I think that the most important thing, one of the most important things we should be focusing on is helping the countries in these situations to build those institutions. You know, I've heard that now the, the international community has decided, well, they're going to reconstruct Haiti, but they're going to do it through the government and building the government as they go. I, I found that really interesting because that's not what always happens in these emergencies. You get these big, huge donor, you know, uh, conglomerations that come in and try to run everything or point at the government and, and wag their finger at them, but they don't really think how do you build it from the bottom, from the foundation to the first floor to the second floor. It's a 10, 15, 20 year proposition. And there's no shortcut to that. These women, they're, this is how it's happening with this project I mentioned. That, that foundation that she's building is actually going to be the foundation for the police force and the courts. She's, she's sort of constructing it as a citizen. Mm -hmm. you know, so once, you know, one of the things we're built, trying to do is to, to bring some of that experience to Kinshasa to, to help mediate with the authorities to say, this is how it can work. Let's go visit, let's go see. Um, it's but it's very, the ins institutions that it's are very in interesting, the, the, the commonality between the, the programs, because we also see the programs as, as a real process of empowerment, that um, the entire population, but in particular, women who are often the targets feel empowered to access the service that is being provided. So they feel empowered to take their children to uh, receive medication. And last year through the, the Carter Center supported um, health programs of river blindness, lymphatic filariasis um, control and, and trachoma control, uh, we supported treatments for 35 million people across South America and, and Africa. And that's, I mean, that's a colossal number of people. We just came back from Switzerland. That's, that, that's the same as four times the population of Switzerland receiving service. And you don't get to that level of coverage from zero. You don't go from zero to 35 million just like that. And the process of making sure that, 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 that people really understand that if they take this medicine as an individual, now we're looking for the population level, but as an individual, they're not going to go home and abort. You're not going to go home and abort? And abort. <laughs> as soon as you start talking about mass distribution of any medicine, the first thing in any population people think about is, ooh, is this some sort of special method of birth control that's going on? Really? Uh, are, are, some, are, are people somehow trying, to, trying to, to control fertility here? I mean, if they see it as outsiders coming in and doing it. If they, if they don't trust the system, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the most trustworthy system is somebody people know on a day-to-day -day basis who they know and trust receiving the, handing over the medicine. And for some of our, our, of our programs, these are community-directed, most likely to be women, people who are taking the medicine. We are empowering them to protect their families and their extended families from disease. 
So they don't come to us and say, but we're distributing the drug, uh, give us some money, or we need T-shirts, we need some compensation as well. We are giving you the power to help your extended family. Now, here's the drug, or here's the training on uh, trachiasis surgery. We are empowering you to help your family and your extended family and the, the population as a whole. And I'm just seeing a lot of cross-fertilization and, and, and similarity in the process. Any examples of what happens when you leave women out of the equation? I'm thinking of one in particular in Nigeria. Do you know what I'm talking about? With a pond that needed to be treated with a chemical? Yes, but I wouldn't like to. Uh, I, I, I recall the story. But it, it was a lesson learned where the women were left out of the equation. The men said, sure, come treat the pond. And the women said, it's our pond. You can't treat it. it they had to, you had to bring the women along. And I think that's a great lesson. That was something that a story I heard when I was in Nigeria. And it was a great lesson learned that you can't leave women out. No, you can't. You can't. To, to, to try and uh, reach families uh, just by talking to men, then you, you're completely missing the point. Um, and all of the strategies, whether they're, they're directed at individual ponds to, to treat them to kill the vector of, of guinea worm, when you know, the water may belong to the community, but it's women on a day-to-day basis who are in there up to their knees uh, gathering the water for their, for their families. But yet it may, they have the responsibility for gathering the water, but they may not have the authority to use it when they get home to wash their kids' faces. They may not have the authority to use it? No, particularly if water is a, a, a scarce resource. So the men will say what? What will keep them from using it? The, the men will criticize them for wasting that resource. Oh. Now, imagine your, your, your personal budget is not money anymore, but it's time. And it's how many hours there are, there are in a day. If it's going to take you two hours to get to the water point and two hours to come back with a 20-liter container, that's four hours of your day fetching that water. Now, that water now, the use of that water dictates how much time you spend on water collection, which is time you're not spending cooking, it's time you're not spending farming, it's time you're not spending tending animals, et cetera, et cetera. So the allocation of the water and the allocation of the water to hygiene purposes, in order for women to do that, there has to be a, a family buy-in that the husband also uh, values the use of the water for that purpose. Now, it sounds as if men are being tyrannical, but I don't mean to give that impression. And we mentioned back in the video that um, where people are eking out an existence on the edge of the Sahara, where human existence is really in extremis, for families to survive and to work, the man and the woman must work together in order to uh, cover all of the basis or uh, the basics of life. The gathering of food, the growing of food, the gathering of water, the cooking, 
the shelter, looking after the animals. Fantastic if you happen to like your husband as well. That's a real bonus. But it's not, uh, it's not really part, part of the equation, is that there must be an, an, an agreement and both must contribute to their, to their capacity if the family is going to make it. Mm. You know, we have just a few minutes left before we open this up to questions, which I hope you all are working on, because I think there's lots of interesting points for discussion from here. But let me bring up something. You're, work, some, you're working in communities sometimes that are polygamous, and you may or may not have your own ideas about polygamy. How does that work out when you're looking at you know, a woman who may be the second, third, or fourth wife, and you're worried about her rights as a person, you're worried about her health? And you have your own ideas. How do you, this is both a health question and a human rights question, so whoever wants to go first, how do you work in polygamous communities? I nominate Liz, I think. Well, when I started working in community-based public health, it was through my work as a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger. And I lived in a small village, and there were eight polygamous families there. And I was friends with those wives, those co-wives, and, and I knew their husbands. And I think that I can cite examples of where that situation worked very well from a division of labor perspective, household economy. And I think that in some cases, some of the co-wives that I knew um, benefited well from the enhancement in status, their social status, because they were a first wife or a second wife, or because they were married to someone who had access to markets or who was a local business person in addition to being a farmer. I knew other people who were government civil servants who generally male. Um, most of my male friends who were civil servants, um, some of them had two, three wives. And it's part of the culture. It's a Muslim country, and it's something that's accepted and practiced. And their wives would share with me stories that were both positive and negative. So it's really hard for me to say it's really bad or, oh, it's really good. I don't think it's really fair to place that judgment. And in particular, in this work, when I go to the field, I don't represent myself. I represent the Carter Center. I represent our mission. And I think that my judgment and my values aren't necessarily important when it comes to making sure that the communities we serve have access to our programs. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, again, I would point back to what I said earlier, that if you look um, in, in just about every society, you will find um, you will find women who are organizing around different ideas. And, and I think that um, it's very important, I agree with, with, with what Liz has said, is that you, you can't go into a situation and, and be judgmental or uh, you know, uh, impose something from, the, from, from a, your own point of view and try to be helpful. That's, that's not helpful. But what I think it, it is important to, to remember is that in every society, in our own society, women have, you, you know, women and this, the, the sort of second-class citizenship of women has gone through phases and, and has evolved and has gone through different, uh, uh, different degrees of change and transformation. And some of these practices, the cultural practices, are being challenged in those societies by women. And I think um, that's important. The, the international, all the international human rights agreements, including the, those that are specifically written for women, where these issues are debated. I was in Beijing, where the, that, the, the issues around women and their equality and their power over, their, over themselves was debated at length. And so far, the international community has maintained a consensus that the rights of women are the same 
uh, and can, cannot be lessened to any degree that culture, uh, that you, even within cultural situations that women have certain rights that are inalienable and that uh, what, we will, what we will see and, and I think how we develop partnerships is you say, well, what are women doing about it in their own societies? And, and you have to be careful how you um, support them. <laughs> so one story um, is a woman of uh, a woman in Nigeria, uh, Amina Lawal. It was a famous case. This woman who was sentenced to death by stoning for uh, turning up pregnant as a single woman, and so of course this, you know, uh, excited everyone around the world um, because this particular case had a lot of publicity, and so you had. Amnesty International and, and many inter human rights organizations getting mobilized and, and writing to the government, which I always think is great. It's great to keep pressure on governments to, uh, to, to address those kinds of issues. However, in this case, the lawyers, who were also women, they were, it was a, this was in northern Nigeria in a Muslim um, society, yeah. and the, her lawyers, this woman's lawyers, were Muslim women, and they were representing her in court and they reached out to the international groups and said, can you please stop the international campaign? It may backfire. It may result in, her, in them following through with the sentence because the, the court does not want to be seen as bowing to international pressure or the feminist you know, movement, that kind of thing. So and this is, it's important to, it, it is important as an American organization to um, never be um, in that situation where you're um, looking as if you're trying to say, well, that's wrong and I'm right, et cetera. But what you can do is you can seek out women who are, tr who are figuring out how to advance their status within their society. That's a worthwhile thing. So I think, again, like I said, don't judge or, or impose, but also don't just assume, well, that's their culture, so you know, there are ways. If you want to help the advancement of women, there are ways to do it in a way that's helpful and not counterproductive. Right. Well, we're ready for questions, and I hope we have some. You all have, I think, cards at your seat and can hand them in to people wandering the aisles who I don't see from here, but I bet if you hold your hand up and you've got a question, we can, you, say again? You have the questions. I have the, oh my gosh, I have the questions right here. <laughs> this is great. Now all I have to do is be able to read them without my glasses. Oh, this is something we should have talked about right at the beginning. We're talking about trachoma and its effects on women, but we never really talked about what causes trachoma. Uh, trachoma is caused by ocular infection with uh, bacteria, chlamydia trachomatis. It's an infectious disease. And so with that, and that ties in with the latrines because you get flies. If, if you don't have a latrine, you get flies, the flies it, carry it. It's a, uh, it's a bacteria and it's contagious. It moves from person to person in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the ways is on the feet and mouth parts of um, eye-seeking flies. And the particular species of fly that moves from eye to eye in a purposeful way uh, breeds in feces, it particularly breeds in human feces, and human feces lying on the surface of the ground. And the whole game with promotion of latrines for trachoma control is to uh, safe disposal of human feces. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that uh, 
the flies say, ah, you're too smart for me, you got me, and lie down with their feet in the air. Um, they, they will still be breeding in, in other uh, suboptimal material. But what we try and do with an integrated disease control strategy is, is knock out several mechanisms of transmission. So we try and, by increasing facial cleanliness, washing the face washes away those infective bacteria so they're not available anymore for transmission. But it also makes the kid less attractive to flies because there's less for the fly to eat. So they're both less likely to infect flies and less likely to be infected by flies. Similarly, uh, women often wear these uh, large wrappers, I have so many different names in different, uh, different cultures, or shawls or cloths they wrap babies in, which uh, as soon as you walk into the village, they, they quickly, oh, my child is messy, and quickly scrub their eyes with the uh, edge of the shawl, which effectively becomes an agent of contagion itself, because when they and rub their own eye with it, they contaminate themselves. So infe in infectious disease, bacterial, multiple routes of transmission. Here's a uh, question that ties together the two areas here, human rights and health, and, and I'd like both groups to answer the question. This is, are women more likely to have bad health in places where human rights are not respected, or is it health and human rights? How related are they? I wish I had a wonderful statistic and a graph, you know, one of Tom Friedman's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, regression map maps, but um, I don't. But um, I think that um, what we, what you notice is that in societies, in advanced um, democratic societies where you have accountability and high expectation of a population that their government will perform some services, and consequences for leaders if they don't. Um, this is an assumption. I can't prove it with numbers. But in all of the, the if you just look at the worst uh, examples of conflict in the last uh, several years, um, you think of um, conflict and horrific tyrannies like Zimbabwe, for example. When Zimbabwe fell apart politically, um, you know, the, there was cholera outbreaks. There were there was a complete breakdown in the health system. The clinics weren't working. So I, I think it's a safe claim, though I would love to be able to to back it up with with numbers. But it's it's about accountability, and it's about power. Paul mentioned power empowerment. This really all boils down to power the power of the state to mobilize the resources to serve people, the power of people to affect their environment. And sometimes when the power of the state is really more aimed at keeping the population in check and under control, there's less available for them to actually provide services. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's why this balance is important because we can, you can take a humanitarian approach to fixing these problems, but ultimately, unless you have capable states, capable states, in order to be able to function as a government, um, then you can't really solve the, these problems, these, in, these institutional problems. Well, Paul or Liz, do you see any relationship between the level of human rights in a country and the level of trachoma or any other disease? Absolutely. 
Tell yeah, us. It, it, I, I, I think that uh, I think one could be a lot more certain than, than Karen just suggested. At, at the simplest level, it, it, it's not only those who live by the sword that die on the sword, and it's uh, women and children who face the, uh, a lot of the brunt of, of conflict. But um, the guinea worm disease program now is focused on the last few pockets of disease around the world and uh, in Africa, and it's, it's essentially a map of current conflict in, in, in Africa, um, where people's human rights are, are taken down to the, to the level of there being no law and order, right. which is the most extreme. Well, that's the places you find the most extreme um, disease. Southern Sudan being, unfortunately, the prime example. Not only is it the last bastion of guinea worm on the world, these guys are also suffering from um, at, at one time in the capital city, they had SARS and cholera and an outbreak of plague. I mean, things that you, you would associate with, with history. So I, I, I think you can, you can very easily equate um, human rights and disease. It's, a, it's all about empowerment. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a question I think that, that follows this a little bit, which is, what um, are women successful at leading some of these movements in in countries where women are are not treated well? Can you get a woman leader who can break out of that mold? And anybody in particular come to mind? Well, I, I don't represent the Liberia program here, but we have um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was elected president of Liberia, and has taken a, a war-torn, horrific one of these terrible stories of war. Uh, endless cycles of war and has turned really started to turn the corner in Liberia to build institutions and the Carter Center is actually working very closely with the government <clears throat> of Liberia um, and with local communities in the rural areas um, interestingly again in this area of justice um, and empowerment of of, of, uh, of um, uh, systems of justice for women and, and etc so it, it's it, it, that's one specific example, but I also wanted to mention that in some of the uh, elections that the Carter Center has been involved in, you have cases like in Nepal where there was a, uh, a set percentage, a quota system for women politicians that had to be, there had to be a certain amount of women, there were reserved seats for women. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. I think that we would have a revolution in this country if we were to suggest that. Um, but um, but I think that women in leadership is extremely important. And one little story about that, in Nigeria in 1999, the Carter Center observed those elections. And here's where, um, I'm going to contradict myself a tiny bit, but not really, um, where you, you have to make sure that in, uh, for example, there was a, a, a civil society network of election observers. And they waited to the very last minute to develop specific programs for women on, on voting, on civic education. And because they waited to the last minute, there were only a few areas where women received specific programs uh, on civic education, on getting out to vote, and you know the civ usual civic education stuff about voting and how, what the ballot looks like and how you go to your polling station, make sure you register, all that kind of stuff takes a lot of effort to do. And in the communities where that was done, the percentage of women voting was, you know, just astronomically higher. 
than where, where they did not conduct those programs. And sadly, in the, uh, one, of the, one, of the, my, one of my good friends in one of these local NGOs in Nigeria uh, was saying, well, but the women won't vote because they're getting the water in the morning and they're doing the, you know, they, won't, they probably won't go, so the, the, those resources were not used for that purpose. So the lesson is that I, I do think that that working with men, women on the process of those civic exercises like an election, the idea of, of promoting women in leadership are essential as part of this process. This is a question for all of you, and Paul, I'm gonna start with you and come down the road just to give you a heads up, and that is, what one woman sticks in your mind as someone the Carter Center has helped? Is there any one story, one woman that you think of? I'm thinking of one woman by the name of Mahalet, who was one of our first TT surgeons, uh, trichiasis surgeons trained in Ethiopia. And so just a few years ago in a nascent program starting with zero productivity, one area suddenly reports two orders of magnitude greater output than all of the other districts we're supporting. So let's go find out what's going on and we'll try and do more of that. And the two orders of magnitude difference in output was one woman, Sister Malet. And she had operated well over a thousand people by that stage. And before she left us to work for another organization, had operated 4,000. How long does an operation take? It uh, takes about 15 to 20 minutes once you have a patient. Wow. But this is a woman who, who is not receiving any additional money for this work. And was, when I spoke to her about it, she basically said, most of my patients are women. How can I leave them hmm. with this condition? When I see them with trichiasis, and they're young women like me, and she was only in her 20s, they're young women like me, they'll never get a husband. How can you get a good husband if you're going to go blind? That's crazy. I can't leave them like this. Others are like my mother. How can I leave, how can I leave my mothers going blind? And that was her motivation. So I would, I, I would say Sister Marlet stands out as being a beneficiary of training who then was able to deliver service to, to thousands of people, most of whom were women. Were women. That's, my, that's my story. Karen? Well, mine goes further back. Uh, the first case that I worked on, or one of the first cases I worked on when I came here, I think it was 1989, um, it was a young woman uh, named Terry Bulata, and she was a field worker for a Palestinian organization called Al-Haq. Um, which is a, a human rights organization that operates in the West Bank and Gaza. And she, we, we heard about her, her case. She had liver failure and was, she was, uh, this was during the first intifada, and so human rights organizations were uh, doing a lot of fact-finding and it was not really uh, in favor with uh, the Israeli authorities and so um, she was being, she was in detention and was being held in a very small room and her health was at stake. So President Carter, I helped President Carter write a letter to um, Yitzhak Rabin, who was then the defense minister, on her behalf. And um, I got a call from her, uh, her associates who told me that 
Two days after President Carter's letter uh, arrived, um, Terry Bellotta was called, she was, she was ill, but she was carried into the, um, into the courtroom and that the state um, attorney who represented the government was, had a copy of President Carter's letter in his uh, file. She was released and received medical treatment. She traveled here the following year to thank President Carter. And I have a photo in my office of her speaking with President Carter. And I saw her on PBS a couple of years ago telling a story about uh, the West Bank and, and the, her, her the situation. And she was older, and so am I. And um, <laughs> But I hadn't seen her since then. And I, I know that she was near death you know, at that time. And this, you know, this is something that President Carter, you don't hear a lot about it, but it's something that President Carter will do quite often is to intervene on behalf of individuals mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just, you know, do what he can for, for, for people and so that, that she's alive and that she's working. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that. And Liz? Well, I think um, I have a number of stories about the trachiasis surgery impact on, on women in particular, but when I think about my first association with the Carter Center it was before I even worked here. And when I lived in my village in Niger, I knew a woman who had had five guinea worms over the course of her life. And her husband had actually been trained as a community volunteer and would do outreach um, activities for guinea worm um, eradication. And this was well before I had lived there. But I was recently there in October, and she was telling me about her family and, and some more of the history of the village and, and what she had been through. And they, they don't have guinea worm anymore. So that's sustainability. I mean, that is really, I think, what we try to achieve at the Carter Center is, is that we can touch people's lives, we can do the training and empower them to, to apply public health principles, and then those, those health concerns are no longer something that's detracting from their productivity and their health and happiness. That would be a good moment to end on, except I have one more question that, that I particularly like, uh, and we are running out of time, so I'll ask you to do this quickly. This note says, I'm retired, I live in the Northeast, I donate. What else can I do? I think that sounds like a very Donate. good idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're right up to time now, and I think we go now to Dr. Hardman for some closing remarks. Well, thanks very much, uh, Joanne, and this wonderful, stimulating conversation tonight. We thank all of our panelists and Joanne as the moderator and join me in thanking them for this excellent presentation. I think this is just one example of the way the Carter Center works, and many of you are familiar with the specific programs and ideas that we have, and tomorrow you'll be able to get more in-depth information about each of the program uh, approaches. But this is a great way to look at the way the Carter Center operates. And Karen had mentioned the participation of women in government, and as you have heard, we've had a team in Sudan. Uh, President Carter and I returned on Sunday from Sudan. And on the ballots there, there were 12 ballots in the south, eight ballots in the north, and you'll hear about that uh, tomorrow morning. But 25% of the positions have to be women in Sudan, which is a very progressive approach in a country that hasn't had an election in 24 years. Just think what we would do in the United States if we said 25% of all positions in our government had to be women 
and what effect that would have uh, on our system. The other comment that I want to make on, uh, with comments that Paul and Liz made in terms of extension health workers in Ethiopia. And this is a, a program that the Carter Center began working on in the late, uh, in the early 90s, but for the last 15 years, based on Prime Minister Mellis saying he was very concerned about rural health workers. And the men that were trained in rural health care, just basic knowledge, hygiene primarily, would often immediately gravitate to the cities and even sometimes be recruited by other countries or then apply for fellowships to go to Europe or the United States and never return to their country. And they were trying to figure out how do we train rural health workers who will stay in their village. And when they were discussing this with us, what they said was women are the key because women do major work in the communities. Women are committed to the village. Women take on all the care of the children, feeding the family, and are less likely to move and go to another village, whereas husbands sometimes, sometimes if, if the grazing uh, decreases, they will leave their wives to take care of the local homestead while they then try to get a job somewhere else and then go back to uh, periodically to the family. So what they came up with was how do we train women in basic health care. So we started working with the seven universities in Ethiopia who over a period of the last 15 years developed 65 to 70 teaching modules on various topics including trachoma as one. And they have trained 30,000 women who are committed to stay in these villages and are now training 5,000 health workers which would be at the level of a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant for these women to report to. And this is another approach that the Carter Center has taken, but the professors at those seven universities have given up copyright for those 65 modules, which we now have put on the Carter Center website, and have invited every other country in Africa or anywhere else to utilize those modules, change them, adapt them to their culture, and feel free to use them. So we are already receiving a great deal of interest from Mali, from Nigeria, from Sudan on being able to replicate that. And the French government has even said they would translate a couple of those modules into French for, for Mali and the Ministry of Health to see how it works. So that's another example of how those health extension workers are working in trachoma, but are a direct result of the Carter Center's effective partnership with the government of Ethiopia and the Education and Ministry of Health uh, sections in that country. But again, th join me in thanking this excellent presentation and stimulating conversation. So this uh, concludes our webcast for this evening, and we are looking forward to having you with us tomorrow. But in the meantime, tell your friends about the webcast. If you also would like to get more information about Carter Center programs, go to our website, and, and which is www.cartercenter.org, and register for notices of Carter Center webcast as well as information. Our 2010-2011 uh, 
conversation series starts in September. And so watch for the announcement of the topics for that, which will, should be added in the next month or so. And also make sure that you follow along with our newsletters and information about uh, programs and interesting events that are occurring here at the center. Just a few housekeeping uh, comments. If you brought luggage with you tonight, uh, remember to collect it before going to your hotel, and staff will be outside the chapel ready to assist you with that. The shuttles will be leaving from the circle to take you back to the Sheraton, or if you need a taxi, uh, staff will be there to help you acquire one. And again, we start at 8.30 in the morning. The shuttles will be leaving from the hotel at 8.15. We look forward to a, a, an excellent day tomorrow with you, and, and I hope you enjoy your evening, and, and we'll see you bright and early in the morning, but not as early as this morning. So enjoy your rest. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center online at cartercenter.org.